An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have as our guest, Alan Klingenstein. Al has enjoyed an eclectic career as a lawyer, an investment banker, an independent film producer, and now a film and television distributor. In each, he's been an overachiever. As a lawyer, he was general counsel to a global fast food company and personally responsible for strategic acquisitions in Singapore, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Thailand. As an investment banker, he did deals totaling billions in real estate-related finance working with such marquee names as Soros Capital, Apollo Partners, Sterling Equities, and KKR. Seeking a major life change, he became a movie producer, and then his films won awards at Sundance and Austin Film Festivals. Now, as a movie and television distributor, he's built FilmRise into the world's leading advertising on-demand streaming service, as well as the provider of some 40,000 titles to everyone from Amazon to Netflix to YouTube. Oh, and just to add to the eclectic part, he also tried his luck at being a ski bum and a speechwriter for a United States senator. So welcome, Al. Hey, John. Thank you. You're making me sound a lot more impressive than I am, but, but I appreciate it. Well, we do have a saying here at Outside that interesting people often have led interesting lives. And the background sounds interesting. It's certainly been an interesting career. So what's your origin story? What sort of background prepares you? the type of career arc that you've had and how did that develop? I prepared myself, not really knowing what the next step would be, trying to think about things that would set me on a career path that maybe I could explain later on, because I was pretty conscious of the fact that when I got out of law and business school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but those seemed like good, good tickets into maybe something when I did figure out what I wanted to do. And I really didn't like being a corporate securities lawyer. And I really didn't like all that much being an investment banker, although it allowed me to make some money and live a reasonably comfortable life before I did figure out what I wanted to do. But I was never all that happy. So I would say if I had to, if I first of all had to answer your question about preparation, my preparation was not for what I ended up doing clearly and ended up becoming relevant later on, but it was really not being happy, not being happy and not being afraid to do something about it and seeing opportunities arise really ad hoc, serendipitously. I think there's always opportunity going by in front of your eyes, but the question is, are you, are, do you want to do anything about it? Do you recognize it? And do you want to act on it? And I think that's the older I got, the more willing I was, I, I, I was to do that. When I invited you to be on Outside In, we talked briefly about your past health issues and you graciously said you'd be glad to talk about them. And thankfully they're in the past. Still, I, I, I love the phrase you said, you said, you felt like the Grim Reaper was tossing grenades at you and you were tossing them back before they could explode. How has fighting back and surviving changed you? What positive things have you been able to take from those experiences? That I am willing to talk about them. I've had uh, 
two kinds of cancer, basically. I had a melanoma pulled off of me. I had a lymphoma, which took an intense chemo regimen to deal with. I've had heart issues and uh, something called sarcoidosis. All of those, which is kind of an autoimmune thing, all of those seem to be 100% totally under control. But people always said to me, when I had lymphoma in particular, I was going through chemo. They, they used to say to me, wow, hang in there, keep fighting. When you go through stuff like that, John, you don't fight. You just do what your doctors tell you to, and you hope for the best, really. And um, I'm not a very religious person, but I do feel like there is some kind of spiritual thing that we don't understand. And I feel like you just kind of got to hope for the best and hope that the universe will respond if you do the best you can. So I think what I learned more than anything else is that life is limited. When stuff keeps coming at you, you, you realize you don't have, you don't have enough time to just postpone things that you think you'll get to someday. You, again, it, it sort of, it sort of dovetails with the happiness thing. It's like, if you're unhappy and you feel like your time is limited, I mean, it's a pretty powerful motivator to do something if, if, if that's what you think you might want to do. We've known each other for a while. And I remember moments when you were very happy. In fact, I remember talking to you right after you left the investment bank and you really were excited about pivoting from deals and wanted to produce, I think the phrase was a quality movie. And you did. I mean, Two Family House, which is the name of the movie, won the audience award at the Sundance Film Festival. So I have two questions for you. You obviously love movies. First, where did your love of movies come from? And second, was there an aha moment when you realized you were actually in the movie business? And what did that feel like to you? First of all, John, I would have to say, given the fact that my background was law and finance, I never really thought I could. I mean, I, you know, I, I like watching movies. I've fantasized about possibly making a movie, but I never thought for a moment I'd ever get the opportunity to do that until a very wealthy friend of mine said, I think you'd be good at it. I can't produce a movie. I have to run my family's private equity firm, but I think you'd be good at it. I'd been willing to put up a million dollars if you found a screenplay that I thought was really good and you thought was really good. So if, if that serendipitous thing hadn't happened to me, I'm not sure I would have, but I, I looked at scripts before I made Two Family House for a year. I must've read, I, I think I counted at one point, I think it was over 200. Locked myself in my apartment for a year. It was very lonely. I was very hard to get people to send me good material. As a matter of fact, I didn't realize till later that nobody was sending me good material because I just was just going to the big agencies who didn't care about me and saw me as somebody who just had some money and they could send all their crappy stuff to me and maybe I'd be dumb enough to pick one. I, I actually found after Jim didn't want to do anything I was sending him, I found one that he actually was willing to do. And that's one that you might not have found in your research, John. It was called Forever Fabulous. I told Jim, the one thing I could do is survey the independent film world and tell Jim, you know what, Jim, you're going to lose all your fucking money. There is no way around it. The independent film world is just built that way. The word net before profit, which is what happens if you're lucky enough to get a distribution con contract, is a very ugly word. And he said, I don't care. That was really liberating. And the first mo movie that I did make, Forever Fabulous, which was a nightmare from beginning to end because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. The only thing I could really do, I, I really had no ability to make sure the movie was made well. I did have an ability to park myself in with the production accountant and make sure they didn't steal Jim's money, which can be something of a challenge on a, on a movie set. But the movie sucked. And when I showed it to Jim, he said, you are a man of your word. This, real, this, is, a, this is a shitty movie but I'm going to give you a million dollars to do it again because I'm used to supporting executives and believing in them. And I think you've, I think you've learned a lot. And I thought, wow, 
That's, that's really pretty amazing. And then I made two family house. So I think the thing that, that struck me about that screenplay when I read it was the first time I'd read a screenplay that actually made me cry. And I realized at that moment that maybe I wasn't as bad as I thought at picking material. Maybe I just didn't have any good material to pick from. And, and that film was the first thing in my life that probably I've ever done with my heart instead of my head. And it changed me. It changed me. It made me believe in myself a lot more when it went to sign. By the way, it is, I think, still the only film in the history of Sundance to win the audience award from outside the competition, which meant that the experts who wear black from various film schools and other places didn't think it was worthy of being in the competition. And the 10,000 people that were at the festival overruled them. And it's a, it's a very sweet film. It's not the kind of edgy, avant-garde kind of material that impresses film school professors and, and uh, arbiters of taste, but it appealed to every man and, and I'm kind of an every man. So that's where I learned, Hey, you know what? Maybe if I like things, maybe uh, other people might too. It did have some star power though. I mean, it, it seems like half of the cast later started the Sopranos. They did. And that's because the casting people that we selected had, it was just after the Sopranos was filmed and these guys had not blown up yet. But we, we hired some cast, a casting duo called, uh, where they Walken Jaffe, uh, Walken was Chris, Christopher Walken's ex-wife at that point. And they had just cast the Sopranos. So they had relationships with all these people. And it was, and it was a story about the ethnic clannishness of Staten Island in the fifties with the Irish and the Italians. And they all, they all hate each other, About the only thing they can agree on is they, they hate the blacks even more. And in this weird ethnic environment, this love story happened. So there were a lot of roles for Italian-American actors. Well, and then you had John Pizzarelli, jazz legend, to the music. And then you did a movie about Dalton Trumbull. And in it, you had everyone, you had people reading letters, Michael Douglas, Joe Allen, Liam Neeson, Donald Sutton, Paul Giamatti. And then in Runaway, the cast included Academy Award winner, Melissa Leo. So you've worked with a lot of stars. I'm Sure, there's stories. You should feel free to share them because we can get titillated just like everyone else. But I'm actually more curious about working with artists at the height of their craft. I've had the opportunity to work with some jazz artists, some theater people, and it, it's it's interesting because what they do is so different from what business people do, and yet I always learn something from them. So. So what have you learned from, from being around the creative types? Well, the hardest part is getting them to be in a movie when you have no money relatively, and they have, they have other opportunities. And the only way to do that is to specifically look for material that gives them a chance to do things that their agent is probably not going to give them a chance to do because the agent's getting 10% of whatever they make and is, you know, very interested in, for example, more interested in putting Dustin Hoffman in. Fokker's 15 than he is in having him do a little film where he's going to get Screen Actors Guild low budget minimum. I mean, literally, I think he made 600 bucks a day. And so did Donald Sutherland to do Trumbo. But these were successful guys who didn't need the money and wanted to do something really interesting. So I, after Two Family House won the Audience Award at Sundance, was picked up by Lionsgate. And that's like every independent producer's dream. The film didn't make any money for me. It made money for Lionsgate, but, it, but nothing came back to the production company and I couldn't pay all the younger people who worked with me who had taken points in the film 
that's when I decided the next film I made had to be, I had to figure out a way to do something that would succeed commercially in a, in a sort of an industry where that's really almost impossible, which is why I specifically went looking for material that big stars might be interested in, particularly stars who cared about the Hollywood blacklist. Michael Douglas's father, Kirk, had been very involved in it, been involved with Dalton Trumbo. So that's the first thing is trying to find material that you can attract them to. And then working with them, that's really pretty easy. You just, you just don't interfere too much. And you let them and you let the director do what they want to. You only interfere when you think something is really horribly wrong or you know, doesn't make financial sense or is getting out of control. And creative people want to be creative and they, they oftentimes don't get the chance and they have to deal with producers who want to be directors. I know that I wouldn't want to watch a film that I made. I'm very confident about that. And that's, it's not a bad environment for a creative. So I, that's what I learned from working with those people. And the rest is, they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing almost always. So I think I know the answer from what you just said, but why'd you stop producing films? I stopped producing films, John, because I couldn't make any money at it. And it really started to depress me as a guy who'd had a life in business. I wasn't happy again. I found myself winning awards and everybody, particularly people that I had worked with in my law and finance careers who were sort of in awe of the whole thing and envious and jealous in a good way. And, uh, sort of saw me like Steve McQueen in The Great Escape, the guy who made it over the fence and made it out. But it started to really weigh on me that I could never figure out a way to make money. And my, the financial backer who paid for those films was a billionaire. He didn't care, but I cared. So I figured that I needed to find a way to create a, a distribution platform. The original plan was that I could come back and produce for us. I as I told my wife, if anybody's going to steal from me, I'd kind of rather be me. So that was really the impetus. And then I found out I love marketing people's films. I mean, it's so interesting as a business to try and identify content that would work and figure out how to put it out there in a way that it could attract an audience. It, I kind of never looked back, although I do fantasize about going back sometime now that my partners and I, and, and one of them's an ex-producer and the other one's an ex-director. So we're all people who've come from the production world and you've got the financial scars to prove it. We've all fantasized about maybe going back and producing some films, but doing it in a really intelligent way now that we have our own platform and we can figure out what the right budget is because we can assess demand and it, it would be a very different enterprise now. But the answer to your question is, it couldn't make any money at it. The distributors make money, so you became a distributor, right? I mean, so, exactly. So, so tell me about FilmWise. As I said in the introduction, it is the largest independently owned advertiser video on demand streaming network and a provider of digital streaming content, the largest in the world. So first tell us what that means. Um, and okay. second, an interesting element to, of your success there, having just said, you know, I love two family house. It made me cry is you don't watch the programs you buy in advance. You rely on some type of analytics. So can you share the types of analytics and why you don't pre-screen what you're buying? Well, first of all, it's not something that we tell filmmakers because it's deeply depressing for them as it would have been for me. And oftentimes we do watch them after they're identified by the analytics, but we, well, I'll tell you how the company evolved. It started off because, you know, my partners, Danny, Jack, and I all had 
had experienced nothing but on, on the business side, nothing but pain producing. And we all knew we had to do something about that and make a change. As a matter of fact, they had lost their company. They had gone bankrupt. It was a pretty large production and, and just TV mostly, production and distribution company. So I'll take a little bit of a detour here. I'll try and make it fast. But the way I met Danny and Jack, I really met Danny first, was I wanted to do something in distribution. I had no idea how to do that, but I knew I needed to find somebody who knew something about it. And so I started talking to people in the distribution world. And I was looking around not too successfully when all of a sudden I got an email, a blog post that was distributed by email from a guy I didn't know. It became my partner, Danny Fisher. And Danny, after he lost his company, started a blog and posted the first post. And it basically said, hello, everyone. I don't know if you'll ever see me again because I've blown up my company. There are 400 people who work with me, who do not have a job anymore. I've never been more depressed, but I just want to thank everybody who's worked with me. And I want to let everybody know that the one thing that in my life that is really working now is I get to spend more time with my wife, who's a social worker, and my son, who's got some bipolar issues, and who knows what the future will bring. And and John, nobody ever says that in the film business when they fail. What they fit, what they say is, hey, my company went down. It's everybody else's fault. I'm on to my new thing. It's so exciting. Here's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be producing this or that. And I thought to myself, again, it was kind of my heart talking more than my head. This guy is a soulful guy. He knows about distribution. I'm just going to reach out. to him. And I did. And over the course of a year, we had lunch maybe every month. And we came up with the idea of sort of skating to where the puck was going and focusing on the streaming services, which at that time were more emerging and not and less established than they are now. And the original idea was we would start trying to pick up some documentaries because they didn't cost anything. There's a there's tons of them produced every year that don't get any distribution. And they're always about something. And if and a film that's about something, you can usually find a site where people who care about that something congregate. And we would blog and tweet and post and hire some interns and try and see if we couldn't start a brush fire of awareness out, moving outward from that core audience. And it worked. It worked. That was really interesting. On the other hand, the business was totally impractical because it wasn't really scalable without hiring more people to do more blogging and tweeting and posting, which was on my partner, Danny, who uh, won a math comp, New York City citywide math competition when he was in high school, came up with the idea of let's try and see if we can't use data signals to try and identify awareness, not whether people would particularly love any piece of content that you put out there, but whether they're at least aware of it, because that's the biggest problem sometimes is if, if, if people, how do, how do people discover content? Well, maybe, maybe there's a way based on the fact that people know about the content, but I've heard about it, but I haven't really seen it. And maybe they'll be curious. And that's why we focused totally on catalog content rather than new productions. First of all, Hollywood only cares about the new and the glamour. So you have to bid on, on that, on that kind of content to get it. And, you know, we could buy this stuff cheaply and there's a lot of data out there about content that's been living in the world for a while. So that's how our business plan evolved. Started off with using very low cost marketing methods to, to sort of, uh, identify content we thought was good and get it out there in the market. And, and then it turned into an analytics-based approach, which is 
really our secret sauce. That's what's really powered us and what's made us so successful. So we started off as a distribution company, got very large, and then decided, hey, we've got all this content. Why don't we start building our own streaming channels and seeing if we can exploit it ourselves as well? And interestingly enough, one of the big discoveries was that big fear was, are we going to cannibalize viewership in other on other platforms if we start putting it everywhere? We call it ubiquitous distribution. And what we found was exactly the opposite. The more it's out there, the more people hear about it. This is not content like a big Hollywood superhero epic that somebody spent $200 million on. The trick is to, again, start, start some viral awareness. That's really how our business plan has evolved. And that's what it is today. So give me an example of sort of classic film rise content so that our listeners can envision what you're really talking about. Okay. I'll give you an example. True crime really works for us in general. There's an old kind of cookie cutter paint by numbers episodic TV program of 17 years worth of it called Forensic Files. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It plays all night pretty much on headline news. CNN has licensed it. Nobody cared about it at all. And somebody, I think the, the producer of the content offered it to us. We ran analytics. At that time to license it, I think we paid $400,000 for 17 seasons of it. That was a ton of money for us at the time. But Danny ran the analytics, which were a little bit cruder than they are now, and came back to me and showed me the numbers that, holy crap, can you believe this? Look at these numbers. They're off the chart. And we just... At that point, we had some faith in the analytics. We just kind of swallowed and, and went for it. And it, honestly, I'd, I wouldn't be surprised we've made $30 million off of it at this point. It's not at all glamorous. Are you happy? Does FilmRise satiate both the business and artistic sides? Yeah, honestly, I, it's, been, it's kind of been the joy of my life just kind of building a company with two partners who I really love. It's, and it's very, it's been, it's been very redemptive for all three of us who had certainly had challenges before in the film business, but also had challenges trying to sort of find where they felt they, they fit in. And, um, I just think building something that really is successful and, um, uh, it's joyful. It's joyful. There is a kind of a creativity in building a company. And not just in creating content. And I, as I said, we, we do have fantasies about going back and maybe producing something. But I think we've all been so happy building, building something. I mean, a business is a hard thing to build. And we've had to make a lot of adjustments along the way. We've had to be nimble. And so that's been enormously satisfying to me. So you talked earlier about skating to where the puck was going, that people weren't into, that into streaming yet. You just talked about having tech. And despite that, of course, we, you still refer to it as the film business. And I bet you very little of what you do is on film. So let me ask you to look into the future. Technologically, we've gone from over-air television stations to cable and satellite to streaming. Live entertainment now has, you know, computerized light, sound, special effects, and even dead musicians and actors appearing as holograms. Immersive computers can put you inside works by Van Gogh. And from a business perspective, obviously everything's changed. I mean, technology companies see content to feed games and VR platforms. Amazon Prime now presents football and changes how football's watched by providing real-time analysis and graphical interfaces, cloud computing. So 
What's next? Five years from now, will FilmRise be providing in-home holograms? I mean, will non-interactive two-dimensional screen-based television or entertainment generally seem as cute but dated as old entertainment technology like player pianos and sheet music? What what comes next? Where where are you skating to? I've thought about where where particularly streaming is going. And I'll start off by saying, you know, we're followers, not leaders when it comes to creating new content. We're more interested in what seems to be working in the market and using that to drive what we acquire. We're we're on the cutting edge of uh, figuring out what the, what that content is. We're not on the cutting edge of making it. And that's by design. We we don't like the risk profile of doing that. But I I thought about this and I think I think that where where streaming is going anyway is for lack of a better term, I'll say I'll call it me TV, where where the, the amount of data that is collected at the viewer level increasingly is going to become, you know, so much more precise that you can create a reasonably accurate psychographic profile of every single person who's watching and you could deliver to them the content that, that you think they're going to enjoy. And it's getting more and more granular every year. And while we do that in a general way, we don't have the data to do it in a very specific way for each, for each individual viewer. But I think that would, I, I think that's probably where it's going for better or worse. And I think you can also help people discover new content that way, although we're not necessarily in the business of, of creating it, but we are in the business of producing it. So if we thought, if we, if, if, if our analytics told us that there is a demand for a certain kind of content based on, um, historical viewing patterns, maybe that would be a guide for us to team up with some production companies, maybe pay for part of the budget, not all of it maybe the last dollars in, in return for the particular rights that we wanted. So I, but when it comes to all the things you talked about, John, all the different forms of content, I mean, wow, who knows, right? I mean, who knows? I don't know. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? (laughs) I like running and skiing. I spend a lot of time outdoors hiking and watching a lot of TV with my wife. Not all that interesting, but that's probably how I spend most of my free time when I, when I get it. You're in the business. What do you and your wife watch? I keep a list of stuff that I want to watch. And I add to it every time somebody I really trust tells me, oh my God, this is fantastic. You ought to see it or I read a review and it sounds interesting. For example, my wife is away right now. She's out in California for, for four or five days. I pull out the list and uh, I watch stuff that I think she wouldn't particularly be all that interested in. It's dramatic films. It's documentaries. It's streaming episodes. It's anything that somebody that I trust or something I read really recommends and I, and I want to see. What are you reading right now? I'm reading a book called Time After Time, which is a really interesting time travel book. I just finished a really fascinating book, even though it's not a new book, by an author, Graham Allison, called Destined for War, which is really a fascinating book about whether the U.S. and China are going to end up avoiding something that the concept that he's named the Thucydides trap. We have an emerging power and established hegemon. I was a history major. He goes through 14 times in history, starting with uh, Athens and Sparta and moving on from there in history where that situation has happened and 
or has been avoided four times and has not been avoided 10. And he goes through each of them time by time and then talks about some of the things that could lead to war. I just found it fascinating. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, you'd like it. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you be? I think I'd be hiking in Switzerland right now. My wife and I did two thirds of this route across Switzerland years ago, and I've always wanted to finish the last third. So I think that's probably where, that's probably where I'd go. I think Switzerland is such a, it's such a playground for people who like to walk. I mean, the whole country, the whole, all signs everywhere. And it's almost like you're driving and it's a, it's a hiker's paradise. So I think I'd go there. Right, last question. If yeah. you could magically say one thing into the ear of everyone in the world, what would you tell them? I would say if you want to get anything done, which requires collaboration, pretty much everything does. Stop and listen to the other people and try and put yourself in their mindset and figure out a way to get them invested in whatever it is you want to get done. And don't fight, but but listen. I think it's been a big part of what I've been able to accomplish. And uh, that works for me. That works for me. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with our special guest, Alan Kligensen. Al, as you have heard, is an eclectic career, some eclectic uh, commentary, and always accomplished and interesting. So thanks very much, Al. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukundik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higgisa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.